The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today, Exploring Different Brains takes you all the way out to Colorado, where Marlo Thurman, who's a special consultant to all of us neurodiverse people whose brains are a little bit different in education and in a bunch of other things, and Marlo herself has a very interesting neurodiverse history. Marlo, welcome to Exploring Different Brains. Good morning. Thank you. Marlo, you and I know each other because we're out there on the speaking tour. We were last out at the uh, United States Asperger's Autism Association, uh, uh, all the way all the way out there in Portland, Oregon, closer yep. to you than it is to me. And uh, you're a very unique individual. Why don't you start telling our different brain audience how you, Marlo Thurman, got into brains? Well, I actually started out in school like the normal person and went and completed a doctoral level sequence in school psychology and was kind of working my way through private practice in um, Boulder, Colorado and working with a lot of different kinds of kids and walked into a box warehouse store and got crushed by 800 pound pallet of conference tables and sustained a TBI. So <laughs> in the midst of you know, a, a private practice and already working in the field and training in some neuropsych and that kind of stuff, then I was living it. So that made kind of an interesting adventure. Traumatic brain injury. Yep. Let's define that for our audience. Well, you can have head trauma, you can have concussion, but a TBI is when you have more than just the kind of immediate effects of a post-concussive syndrome. You actually have damage to the brain that um, alters kind of the course of, and literally it causes, it's usually caused by two things. It's some shearing in the brain of some of the neural synapses that are in the brain. And then it also, um, there's quite a bit of research that shows that the swelling that comes from a, from a concussion actually causes brain trauma as well. So it's kind of a more lasting than, you know, when we think of just a concussion or a bump on the head, it's actually a more lasting and uh, more lasting condition that is they're ranked from mild, moderate to severe. All right. So describe to our audience what your TBI was at its worst and what it is now to you. Um, it's interesting when you have a TBI, the very first probably six or eight months, it's kind of foggy. Like you're kind of blessedly um, protected from knowing really what's going on. I mean, you kind of know, like I remember in the first days and weeks after the accident, I lost the ability to write. I lost the ability to, um, I was trying to journal some of my experiences because, you know, by that point I was already involved, you know, I had to be with a lawyer because, um, you know, anyway, long story short, I ended up having to go through a legal battle um, with the warehouse in which I was crushed. So I was advised early on to start trying journal. And that's been interesting to go back through the years because I really lost the ability to even write some simple words, although some of the bigger words stuck. So like I say, there's just some differences. Probably for me, um, once that fog kind of wore off, six months or so, um, I was having pretty severe sensory 
um, issues. In other words, I was having a hard time filtering my sensory system. I would get easily overstimulated. That happened before. I just wasn't aware of it. In other words, my stamina was super tiny. I was, you know, sleeping 18, 20 hours a day um, during those first months. Once I finally kind of woke up and started, you know, really kind of being able to function a little bit better, then I was having, you know, a lot of problems with sensory processing. I was having a lot of problems with, um, managing executive functioning tasks, a lot of problems still with reading and writing. Um, but I just, uh, probably the stamina and the fatigue were the biggest. And then, like I say, it's pretty common, but in head traumas of my type, um, within 18 months, I started having seizures and I was having partial and temporal lobe seizures. So in my experience, that was the worst is during the time I was really having those seizures. But to the people around me, I was much worse in those six, you know, those first six or eight months because I was so absent and unavailable. Describe for our audience what a temporal lobe seizure is. Um, you know, there's two, there's different types. In my case, I actually, it, I dropped, I dropped to the ground. I dropped like a hot potato. So I would have, um, usually I would, so there's different types of seizures. And by the way, I'm certainly not a seizure expert. I know my two, but I don't, I wouldn't claim to know other people's seizures. But in my case, um, I would get a real, a really sharp pain in kind of my right temporal lobe. And immediately I would just be out. I would be on the ground. And it wouldn't matter where I was or what was happening. I would be on the ground. Um, I never had grand malls. I never had convulsions or, you know, some of those things. I People who've seen me have seen me see said I had, you know, kind of a twitchy kind of a thing. Side of my face, side of my hand would kind of be twitchy. And I'd be out for you know, anywhere from 10 to seconds to a minute, minute and a half. And then I would just kind of come to, and at first they really thought they were some kind of a fainting spell because in other words, it took some time to get them diagnosed. Now the partial seizures were very different in that I kind of retained consciousness, but I wasn't able to speak. I wasn't able to move, but I didn't go down. So I was actually having almost from, you know, from a partial Sometimes they were called absence seizures and sometimes they were partials, but literally to the point that I would lose the ability to speak sometimes for five to seven minutes where I couldn't speak at all and I couldn't really control my movements, although I was kind of still sitting up and kind of looking around according to people who have seen them. I was definitely not present, but I was and I would I remember the sensation of wanting to speak, but not being able to speak. That was probably the most noticeable on the on the partials, the temporal lobes would take me out. So I don't remember them at all. Tell me what uh, asynchronous development means to you. Um, uh, I'm kind of the TUI expert. You didn't mention that part in my bio. I'm a, I'm, as school psychologist, I specialize in a group of kids who are both gifted and asynchronously developed. In other words, they're if you think about a bell curve, a, you know, kind of a standard bell curve, it's kids who have skills on both tails of the distribution. Now, that's obviously the extreme of what we call twice exceptionality and that they are both gifted and disabled. But asynchronous development then is when there's skills that are far from other skills. In other words, a kid can be highly developed. Maybe, you know, they're a gifted kid born with innate cognitive ability, but their sensory system hasn't caught up yet, or they're born with very high aptitude for math problem solving, but can't read. So that would be examples of asynchronous development, but the, but the extreme tails of that bell curve would be the true term of twice exceptional, which is gifted with a disability. 
Well, that makes sense. Twice exceptional. Yeah, 2E or twice exceptional, yeah. And uh, you're an expert in twice exceptional. Um, I try to be. <laughs> Definitely been doing it a lot of years. I've seen... I've seen probably 4,500 twice exceptional kids, and that's not a very big stretch. I, you know, when I count file folders, I've got file folders on 4,500 kids in my practice. Now, some of those I've tested myself. Some of those I've just reviewed records from other places. Um, I did own a school for a number of years um, that was a twice exceptional school, and during those years, we had about 150 kids come through the school. So, like I said, I've just I've worked with a lot of really quirky kids through the years and sometimes the most quirky the kind of the weirdest kid or the most unusual <laughs> everyone else thinks they're weird I think they're the I think they're adorable but um the point being those kind of really unusual kids those are the kinds of kids I've specialized in working with throughout my career and uh, what about adults do you do any work with adults I do, mostly with adults with autism. I don't have too many other kinds of adults that come through my practice. Occasionally, you know, I'll get a client who, you know, the age of 50 really wants to figure out why they've struggled so hard throughout their whole life with a learning disability that was never diagnosed or something like that. So I do have some um, asynchronous adult clients, but it's a handful. Um, I would say the majority of my practice has been young children, but I've also, you know, I also keep my clients. My clients generally stick around. So I'm, a lot of my clients are aging out into adulthood. And as a result of that, I'm starting to see more and more clients that I, you know, they're in their mid twenties that I've seen them since they were, you know, six, seven, eight years old. So I'm getting old enough to have seen some of the, a lot of these kids grow up. Oh, come on. You're not getting that. I am. <laughs> you're still a kid yourself. Now, on the bell-shaped curve, um, take us through a twice exceptional individual. Um, do they, quote, grow out of it, or what happens to them in adulthood? It depends. Uh, some gifted kids are really, when we're gifted, we're born within, with higher level cognitive abilities. I mean, that's what really the definition of gifted is. In other words, our innate cognitive potential is higher than in another population. So when we're working with those kinds of kids, they're born with a sensory system that is too young. In other words, they take in more sensory information than they can process. Um, they might be able to think up bigger ideas than they can put to paper. Um, they might be able to really, you know, do really high level thinking, but their motor skills, their fine motor skills are still very young. So some of the asynchrony is inherent in being you know, just being a gifted kid. And by the way, we see that on the other end of the bell curve too. We see kids with intellectual disabilities having asynchronous development. So it doesn't just have to be a gifted kid. It just happens that I specialize in gifted kids. So when a kid is born outside of norms in terms of their cognitive abilities, very often some of their other skills will develop at different levels and that can make them asynchronous. Now that's, a, that's the easy part of asynchronous development because what we have in the extremes that I see is very often in addition to those normal developmental things that just haven't caught up yet or those normal things that haven't aged out yet, we're also seeing some mental health, um, social emotional behavioral learning disabilities all the way into the extremes of, you know, bright kids with autism spectrum disorders. So in other words, it could take a the the term is very very broad and that can cover it can cover any type of kid who has skills that are 
you know, ranging from the first percentile to the 99th percentile and or above those and below those numbers. And it can fall anywhere within there. And it can be any of the skills. So like I say, it's a very, it's a very mixed bag in terms of working and identifying some of those things. What's the biggest single thing about a twice exceptional individual that our audience may not get? How exhausting it is to be twice exceptional. Um, and by the way, I think I take certainly from my own TBI experience to understand that when you're compensating, in other words, if you're fairly bright and you can cover it, you can compensate, you can fake it, <laughs> you, can, you can figure it out even if it doesn't come easy for you, you can do that for a period of time and you can do that fairly well for a period of time until your reserves are shot. And what happens and this is what I see in my, you know, these kids start out looking pretty good. They look bright. They look quirky. They look inconsistent. They look unpredictable. On Monday, they can answer the question. On Thursday, they can't answer the question. But in their younger grades, they, they kind of get by. In other words, they don't qualify for special ed services. They don't need, you know, they don't, even though they need supports, they're usually not getting the supports they need because they don't look bad enough yet. But what happens especially it seems like during those growing up years where you're growing you know where we're we're starting to grow a foot a year and we're really developing and these young people are really you know coming through those growth spurts I really see um what I what it starts out as kind of adrenal activation and by the way in autism it's a whole different story because kids with autism get this when they're tiny I mean little tiny babies but you're more you're more kind of if there is such a thing you're more vanilla Give, you know, your more traditional looking twice exceptional kids kind of can keep it together for a few years. Um, but what happens is somewhere during, you know, 8, 12, sometimes they make it to 13, 14, they really start having a lot of problems with digestion. They start having problems by not being able to sleep. They get headaches, stomach aches, and it starts looking like anxiety. And what that really is, is adrenal activation. In other words, they're using too much energy in a day and they're having to, having to dip into these biological reserves that we all have for survival, but that's not very sustainable. And so what happens is they're exhausted, even though they're not tired, sleepy tired, they're exhausted. And that over time re results in some other real big problems because it actually affects the way they pull nutrients out of their food. It affects their you know, digestive tract, it affects their detoxification process, their cellular respiration process, some of these higher order functions that we need for long term sustainability, get taxed too hard during adolescence. And we start seeing that's the place where we also, you know, go off to middle school, and instead of having one class and one teacher who's kind of got our back, now we've got, you know, seven classes and seven teachers, and we're trying to navigate all these, you know, different people. And what what I really see is that, that's where the sustainability fails them and they're not able to literally make it through a school year. And so we start seeing behavioral stuff. We start seeing, you know, some of the young men become behavior problems. In other words, it's easier to act up than to keep working and not be successful. Um, young women can be very internalized. And again, those are blatant categories that don't apply to every kid because we can have young men doing what young women do and vice versa. But I have, you know, I get kids who are cutting on themselves or kids who are, you know, really very depressed, very suicidal. So I see a lot of that mental health stuff kind of popping up 
in those years. And when we really, when I really start working with those kids, first thing I'll do is put them in bed for a week. (laughs) And it's amazing how, I mean, I've been able to circumvent a number of hospitalizations for kids by putting them in bed and letting them really rest and, you know, making sure they obviously have some supervision around that, but just getting them rested and then figuring out how to work with the things that are consuming all their energy in such a way that they're not so exhausted. So that's the, I think that's the number one hurdle. And it's the one that we miss because we don't see that that kid got so tired. We don't recognize how, how tired they really are. And it's tired for a multitude of different reasons, depending on the individual. Right. But more specifically, it's tired because of the amount of cognitive energy. And it's important to recognize that we have cognitive energy, physical energy, emotional energy. Those are different buckets. We don't get to steal one from the other. Whenever a bucket is empty, it hits our reserve, which is our fight, flight, adrenal activation system. And so from that standpoint, what we get is it's usually cognitive fatigue. And cognitive fatigue comes from the need to compensate for that asynchrony. In other words, the more you, the more asynchronous you are, the more energy it consumes to compensate for that asynchrony. And the more you have to fake it and work harder than the next guy to do the same thing. This is very interesting. I was rather ignorant of the whole pituitary, adrenal, um, and what you're discussing. The analogy I make to myself is I wear hearing aids now, which I just started wearing about three years ago. And I've been pretty deaf since I've been 18. And uh, I didn't realize until I got hearing aids how much energy it was draining just to be reading lips, to sit at a board meeting and bluff and pretend you knew and try to read body language. And now that I can actually hear you, (laughs) it's easier. It's easier. And the cognitive uses up more. It's less energy. At the end of the day, when the at the end of that day, you're less tired than you would have been, you know, had you not had those hearing aids. And that's a perfect example. But now add six, seven, eight things. And most of these kids don't just have one thing. They have five or six bleeders, is what I call them. You know, we're kind of doing triage to kind of stanch the stanch the bleeding to get them so they're in a position where you know, they can use their energy to function instead of using their energy to compensate. Just take us through the anatomy and physiology rather briefly, okay? I have Asperger's. My parents make me go to this big party. My Aunt Sadie, who's got this horrible, strong fragrance of perfume, hugs me close. My sensory is overloaded, sounds, lights, everything. Now take us through what your brain is doing. Well, and by the way, you're talking autism specific, and I think it's important that we recognize that the that the individual with autism isn't just a more extreme variant of twice exceptionality. It's its own it's its own thing, and I'm a firm believer in this idea that people with autism don't have the same sensory system that the rest of us do. They have a more heightened sensory system. In other words, and I've talked to, you know, hundreds of people with autism through the years, and I'm finally hearing them. And what they're saying is, you know, all of you run a dual or, you know, a three-lane highway system at most. In other words, you're paying attention to what you hear, paying attention to what you see, and, you know, occasionally a smell might pop in on you, but you're pretty good at filtering out and running on a two- or three-lane kind of highway system. 
meaning that the information is coming in and I can process it and go back out. Now in autism, and I've heard hundreds of people with autism describe this, and what they're saying is that I don't have that filter. I see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it, feel the motion, feel the air pressure, feel the the feel my digestive responses, and I either can attend to those or I can completely block them out through a full on blockout. But in the in autism, I really think we start with a different sensory system altogether. In other words, it's like the all the sensory systems, all eight of them in specific, are processing in real time. And so what that does is it changes the ability the amount of energy, first of all, it changes the amount of energy that is necessary to manage that that party that you're talking about. So in other words, that kid, by practicing, there's some thought process around, you know, maybe I can get ready for this or get ready for that. But you're still dealing, when you say, I, I think you use the word sensory assault, that's literally what it feels like. And I had one guy I was working with explain to me, he said, you know, it's like, all of you have a full tank of gas and you have two sensory channels that you have to use that gas to filter. I have a fourth of a tank of gas and I have eight lanes of information that I have to filter. And so my gas, the, the gas in my tank gets used up much more quickly in that in a very short period of time those eight channels of sensory information all coming at me because I don't have an original filter to be able to listen to this one and ignore that one, then there's something that makes it so that it consumes all of my energy very, very quickly. So the first thing is the sensory. I think in addition to that, though, we get some very big differences in terms of how because of that sensory difference, the things that are remembered, the things that are stored, the, the focus in other words, there might be, if you're, you know, if the, if the ant's perfume is noxious, but the carpet is particularly interesting, then I might walk away from that party with a full memory of the pattern of that carpet, whereas, whereas a neurotypical person didn't notice the carpet at all. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Now, Marlo, what was it like being director of the U.S. College Autism Project? You know, it was fun. It was kind of a project that Larry and I put together to um, really get colleges on board with some formal training that would allow them to be able to serve the needs of individuals with autism. Um, what we found is that especially, you know, we have these kind of quirky, bright kids with autism who had a lot of help in school, who had an IEP and they had special ed teachers and they had parents kind of backing them and in their corner. And they were able to get through high school and do fairly well and get themselves into college, but what the attrition, the attrition rates were sky high. In other words, without those kind of supports that they were used to, they really didn't make it. There was also another population that made it all the way through college, but then were couch locked at their parents' house after college because they didn't have any of those continuing skills. So Larry and I kind of created that project really in the, in the, and it started kind of with some of the colleges that we were working with, you know, Stephen Shore was at Adelphi and we kind of was working with some of the things that he was doing to train there. And so we put together that project and we were able to train a number of colleges or work with a number of colleges through the years, through our conferences that we were able to facilitate some nice partnerships and some relationships so that we could more comfortably say, well, 
you know, if you want to go to this school, here's a couple people we know there, and here's the disability support coordinator, and here's what we can do. But the project didn't really take off as much as we had wanted it to because college funding is scarce, and there was not a lot of excess funds to train. And then the, the other thing we found is that some colleges and universities really don't want these kids there. They would really rather have them go somewhere else. And so, like I say, we kind of hit some big roadblocks that slowed the momentum down and to the point that we, that project, that college autism project has become kind of a conference training model, but we have, it hasn't gone a lot further than that. And it has, it has to do with limitations in the funding in higher ed to be able to pay for, for training for individuals with autism. So that's kind of where that's at. What else would you like to speak about that I may have ignorantly uh, not covered in this interview? I don't think you, actually, I, you introduced it, but I think that idea that our mind and our body, that wellness piece is huge. And I do, you know, I've really found it, it's been interesting. And again, that's the personal journey side of my story, because along with working with all these two individuals, I've had to live in a body that was overnight turned twice exceptional. And so, you know, I really, and you kind of mentioned the exercise piece. And I think that is so critical that we have to keep moving. We have to keep respirating. We have to keep our bodies healthy. But I really feel like there's a whole part of our society that is really blind to the fact that we're literally poisoning ourselves with some of the things that we're eating and some of the things that we're drinking and our food supply and some of these things. So I, and by the way, I was one of these people as a young person that kind of made fun of, you know, celiacs and, you know, gluten-free and organic food people. But as I've gotten older and gotten to the point I've been diagnosed with some of these issues myself from not paying attention to that. I've become very aware of that mind-body connection. By the way, I'll have a whole other book for you, which is about clinical depression. And like I say, and that's a personal story too. I've actually dealt with some depression because of some autoimmune conditions. And I had four years where I was covered in hives, literally, because my body was so tanked out physically that I, yeah, I... I, I ruined my health by continuing to fight the good fight and work beyond my means. So all good stories. <laughs> Dr. Molo Thurman, how can our audience get in touch with you and learn more about you? Well, I'm, a, I'm an easy Google, so you can read a lot of my short work um, just by Googling my name. I don't have a website, which is sort of crazy, but I keep myself pretty busy without one. So the best way to reach me is through my, my business email at 2econsultingservices at gmail.com. Marlo, thank you so much for being with us. We've been talking here with Marlo Thurman, Dr. Marlo Thurman, the twice exceptional expert expert on the adrenal with 2E Consulting out there in Colorado, herself a traumatic brain injury survivor. Marlo, thanks for all you do and thanks for being with us here at Different Brains. Thank you, Hacky. I appreciate being on your show. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.